0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com/slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. the Telegraph Podcasts.
1: I'm Dom Nichols in the hot seat today, and this is Ukraine the latest. Today we discuss the missile strikes across Ukraine, hear from a former British soldier about his efforts to train Ukrainian troops, and I give a readout of what it was like for us being in Rome with the Defence Secretary as President Zelensky arrived in the UK and started the jet ball rolling.
2: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has
1: destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 10th of February, day 352. And with me to talk Starlink and cyber attacks, we have Senior Tech Reporter Gareth Caulfield, and we're joined by Daniel Ridley, who set up the Trident Defence Initiative. I've started with the latest news from Ukraine over the past twenty-four hours. Now Zaporizhia the town in the in the sort of center of the country on the Dnipro uh, the River that has suffered its heaviest rocket attack since the war began um 17 missiles hit in just an hour there have been other strikes across the country including Kyiv Ukrainian Air Force is saying that it shot down 61 of 71 cruise missiles. Um, and uh, Yuri Eniat, who's the Air Force spokesperson, he told Ukrainian television that Ukrainian air defences had shot down five of seven drones and five out of six caliber missiles. That I think the, the context there was um, heading towards Kyiv, but I'm not exactly sure. However, he also said that Russia had launched at least 35 anti-aircraft S-300 missiles, which Ukraine's air defences... Um, well, were unable to shoot down and borderline, I'm not sure they have the capability to shoot down S-300s. And they were aimed at Kharkiv and Zaporizhia regions. Now, what was the effect? So several high voltage facilities across Ukraine were hit. So they're still, Russia's still trying to attack the critical national infrastructure. That comment came from Ukraine's state grid operator, Ukrenigo. Um, And then Valery Zaluzhny, who is the head of Ukraine's armed forces, said that two caliber two caliber cruise missiles launched from the Black Sea had entered Moldovan airspace and then flown over Romanian airspace before entering Ukraine. Now, as uh, one of our listeners, Paul, thanks, Paul. Paul said if the missile had gone over Romania, if that story is true. Shouldn't that trigger some form of statement from NATO? And uh, yes, you're absolutely right, Paul. So I gave NATO a ring, spoke to uh, one of the spokesmen over there, and they said the story was false and that Romania were literally just about to put out a press statement. And sure enough, a a few minutes later, Romanian MOD did put out a statement which said the following, quote, The aerial surveillance system of the Romanian Air Force detected on Friday, February 10th, an aerial target launched from the Black Sea from a ship of the Russian Federation near the Crimean Peninsula, most likely a cruise missile, which evolved in the airspace of Ukraine, the Republic of Moldova, and re-entered the Ukrainian airspace without intersecting at any time the airspace of Romania. The statement goes on, the closest point of the target's trajectory to Romania's airspace was recorded by the radar systems approximately 35 kilometres northeast of the border. The Romanian authorities applied all standard procedures from the moment that the target launch was detected until the situation was fully clarified. In addition, at 10.38, two MiG-21 Lancer aircraft of the Romanian Air Force from the Air Police Combat Service under NATO command, which were at that time on an exercise flight were redirected to the northern area of Romania to uh, to supplement the reaction options. About two minutes uh, after, about two minutes, the situation was clarified and the two aircraft resumed their original mission. The Romanian Air Force constantly monitors, in cooperation with Allied forces, the national airspace and the area in the vicinity. Unquote. Bit long, but I wanted to cover everything there. So yes, um, Romania acting in an in uh, well. Combat service under under NATO command. It would have been very serious had these had these missiles flown through NATO airspace. There undoubtedly would have been some response, probably just a statement. I would have thought maybe a bolstering of the air policing as we as we have seen in recent months. But that came directly from from Romanian from the Romanian Air Force spokesperson. Now Moldova has said it's going to summon Russia's ambassador after the, after the suggestion that the missile went across. Across their air spa- airspace, but that is an ongoing situation. Now, elsewhere, let's let's look at the Donbass. So, back in the centre of the country, or the the central east of the country, since Tuesday, the reports of Wagner Group has pushed about two or three kilometres further west from the northern outskirts of Bakhmut, the town there that's been fought over for months. Uh, and Wagner now thought to hold uh, a lot of the countryside around the M03 road, which runs northwest northwest towards Slovyansk, about 30 k's away. Now, there's two main roads into Bakhmut, which are the supply lines for the Ukrainian forces in there. The M03 runs, as I say, from the town of Bakhmut northwest, and it looks as if Wagner are in or around it, but able to control that corridor. Now, I want to lift you out. Let's go 100 kilometres southwest. 100 kilometers southwest to the town of Vulodar, which is, as I say, 100 k's southwest of of Bakhmut, and it's about 20 k's west southwest really of Donetsk city. Now, Russian units there have made advances around the western edge. Um, they they started major offensive operations there in late January, um, but it's looking it's looking a, a much tougher fight for Russia. There are reports of very heavy casualties, um, because it's thought that uh, Vulodar has been fought. By Russia using very inexperienced troops and in one failed assault it's assessed that around 30 mainly intact vehicles were abandoned that last one there came from the UK, uh, UK's defence intelligence report for today so Vuladar is a much harder fight now, linked to that, hold that thought for one moment. Let's have a look at the ISW, the uh, Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, very credible think tank. They're saying that Russian military command may be shifting away from its reliance on Wagner. And they're saying that the uh, Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service figures show decreases in the Russian prison population stabilised between November last year and January this year. Remember we saw Yevgeny Prigozhin, the boss of Wagner, going round the... Around the jails or recruiting convicts, uh, and so that effort is thought to have slowed, if not stopped, and therefore, um, hence these these figures are are sort of flatlining. Now that phenomenon of the of, of fewer convicts leaving uh, prisons is consistent with the overall trend of conventional Russian troops slowly replacing Wagner forces around Bakhmut. Yevgeny Prigozhin said yesterday Wagner had quote completely stopped unquote. Recruiting prisoners and said that all obligations are being fulfilled for those currently fighting for Wagner. Now, those obligations, if you, you remember, uh, they've been promised pardons for all their crimes if they well, sorry, they've been promised pardons for their crimes uh, for six months' service in the in the in the military or in the Wagner group. Now, you know, between us, what that equates is: is if you are still alive in six months' time, then you have your your crimes pardoned. Um, so, you know, questionable whether that's a good deal or not. Now, Prigozhin also claimed, bit a bit, bit wobbly on this one. He claimed that over 10 million Americans have applied to join Wagner. I'll say that again. 10 million Americans have have applied to join Wagner. Mm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm a bit skeptical. Of, in fact, I'm skeptical about everything that Evgeny Prigozhin says. To be honest, he still hasn't taken me up on that offer of lunch. But anyway, so what I'm thinking is, this is my assessment now. What I'm thinking, I think the relative looks, relative success around Bakhmut has been because. The Wagner forces have been fighting there, motivated, if you want to think of it that way, by having their having their, you know, having their pardons in six months' time. Um, but those attacks, I was speaking with Ben Wallace in, in Rome, as as I said uh, over the last couple of days, we were talking about these, and he characterised it as quote human wave meat grinder type attacks. Right. So we've said this before that, that that they just seem to be really unsophisticated, just running at the Ukrainian positions, trying to find the weaker areas. Which they can then backfill with more experienced Russian soldiers. Um, so that seems to have been the case. Now, if the regular army is taking over, partly because General Grasimov is now in charge of the whole thing, and he's uh, you know he's got a long-running power struggle with prigozhin but also because Wagner is depleted, I wonder if that northern sector where there is this relative relative success around Bakhmut is that northern sector going to start stumbling as the regular Russian army is doing in Vuhledar. Uh, right. I'm going to take a little little pause there. I want to uh, have a chat with Gaz. I see you see you in the room, Gaz. Um, great to have you back. Firstly, can we turn to Starlink? There's a story today that Elon Musk's SpaceX, and own Starlink, is said to have restricted access to the system, accusing Kiev of weaponizing the tech. And Gwynne Shotwell, who she's the president of, of, of SpaceX and the most senior exec after Elon Musk, she said... Ukrainians have leveraged it in ways that were unintentional and not part of any agreement. We know the military is using them for comms and that's okay. But our intent was never to have them use it for offensive purposes. We'll do everything we can to make sure. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Stumbled straight into my next my next quote there. So so it looks like Starling are going to SpaceX is going to turn off Starling. I asked Ben Wallace about this in, in Rome and he said to me, we'll do everything we can to make sure that if there is a loss, if there is a loss that was his emphasis um you can tell i've done this before if there is a loss of starlink that it isn't mission critical to the ukrainians which i think i i I thought was a very interesting comment so i said would you be willing to step in and provide the service if starlink has gone and he said yes absolutely so i thought that was a really interesting exchange with ben wallace so gaz sorry a bit of a download there great to have you back we'll talk about ransomware in a moment but can you just come in and give us the what is starlink and why is it so important to ukraine
2: Right, so Starlink is a satellite communication system. What it is, is is essentially Elon Musk, SpaceX, has launched thousands of satellites into Earth orbit and they're used to provide internet connectivity. The ground component of that is a small portable dish, a bit like a sky dish if, you, if you're in the UK. Um, you can set it up remotely anywhere, point it at the sky, and that gives you con- internet connectivity. Now that's really valuable to the Ukrainians because Russia has made a, a habit, a a specific point of... Carrying out airstrikes and on mobile phone masks and destroying telecommunications infrastructure as a way of trying to cripple Ukraine. I think the uh, the pod guys have, have been uh, have talked about that in in previous episodes at great length. So I won't dwell on that for too long. But as a result of that, the Ukrainians have found that Starlink absolutely meets their needs. It's 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 portable. It's it's easily deployable, and the backhaul is extremely difficult for Russia to target without triggering further consequences. Now. Ms. Shopwell's comments, which Dom's just alluded to there, are potentially concerning actually because if the Ukrainians were to lose access to Starlink, that would put a serious dent in their ability to, to communicate, to run their civil society, but also to, to be able to do things like you know, military command and control for the essential comms that they need to keep on fighting the war. And it's not the first time that Starlink and SpaceX executives have made should we say, ambiguous comment about it. Musk himself has said in the past that he was questioning the the amount of, of money that was being run up on the service after he initially offered it to Ukraine pro bono. And I think he was eventually leaned on by sources in the States to uh, continue doing that good thing. Now, it's a, an open question as to whether that means the Department of Defence are specifically funding it themselves. They, they may well be. I have to confess, I I wouldn't want to make a statement on that either way because I hadn't checked. <laughs> but to bring it back onto, onto point there, the... Um, The concern for the Ukrainians is that if Starlink is switched off, or otherwise there is something put in the way that that prevents them from making full use of it as they are at the present, then that brings the the question of what can you introduce to replace it? Well, the Russians have been and are continuing to target mobile phone masks and internet infrastructure, data centres, all those types of places, and despite Western support, obviously... You need mobile phone masks, you need those physical cables, you need those links and nodes to keep the telecom's infrastructure going, and those are physical things that can still be destroyed and targeted today. So... What do we have in our back pockets to to sort of reassure the Ukrainians? Well, we we do have. I think, I think we mentioned there OneWeb, which was formerly owned by the British government. Ben Wallace, the Defence Sec, I think, has told on that he he thinks that we've actually divested it fully now. There is there is a live issue at the moment about its ownership and control, but that's a very very economic, very almost political dimension to it. Um, one OneWeb's, OneWeb's equipment is not. Particularly suited to Starlink style applications, it tends to be quite large and heavy and bulky. They they advertise that as a, a sort of something you can put on on perhaps a lorry flatbed or on a some more substantial vehicles and you know, ships and so on. So that's that's not the best of potential replacements for starlink's capabilities but again we're, we're assured by my mr wallace that there are things that britain can do i mean that could be as simple as supplying satellite communication phones that could be as you know some, something of that that type of nature certainly we've got plenty of that kind of kit and i'm sure we do have experts available we can talk about that but in terms of, of a potential starlink shutdown or a potential replacement for starlink it's not looking particularly good i mean it is Obviously, a good thing that Starlink is continuing its support for now, and certainly I think everybody, everybody speaking and listening here today will be will be keen to maintain that as a situation. But in the face of Starlink running up costs to provide the service, which are perhaps not being recouped, there is a, an issue there about about keeping that support going and potentially having something available to, to deploy as a replacement or to supplement or augment Starlink. And it's... Well, I mean, it, They have raised concerns. I mean, Gwynne Shotwell has has, has talked about the the weaponization of it by Kiev and has strongly hinted that that's something that they would not like them to be doing. And from a commercial point of view, you can see that because that exposes their equipment to direct Russian attacks, as uh, has actually happened previously. I think last year in the war, there was an attack against a cyber attack by Russia. Against some communications facilities which resulted in wind farms in Germany going offline as it knocked out the uh, vital internet comms that they used to keep themselves online and functioning. So there is that issue there as well of Starlink being relied on by the Ukrainians for purposes which... Starlink's operators and deployers are not perhaps comfortable with because it brings them into the firing line. So again, that is that is something where we need to sit back and consider what else is available to us as the West. What is? What can we do not only to reassure Starlink and shore them up, but also to ensure that if something happens, either as a direct result of a Russian, for example, cyber attack or worse or something something more kinetic than a cyber attack that there is an ability to put something in place to say hey you know we, we can keep the ukrainians online we can keep them functioning we can keep their civil society going as well as whatever military uses the ukrainians might be finding for this internet connectivity it is worth noting i don't think the ukrainians have actually commented on the uh, on the starlink situation or almost Shockwell's comments about the ukrainians and kiev's uses of it but it has been fairly resilient to russian hacking attempts so far as far as we know anyway so there is there is that sort of happy notes to end on that for now it continues and for now they still the Ukrainians are still able to use Stalin and keep it going. Yeah, does that, does that sort of cover the area there, Dom? Have I have I, have I given us a good good workable summary to to be going on with?
1: That's brilliant. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Now into your area of expertise fully let's get deep and dirty with cyber attacks and ransomware can you just bring us back up to speed on what has happened why we we've not really seen a huge amount of cyber didn't mean for my voice go very high there but yeah cyber attacks from russia why might that be but we have seen ransomware in recent weeks so if you could just dial us back in there please
2: Yes, the ransomware situation. Now, the, the most the most newsy thing that's occurred was UK declaring financial sanctions on seven Russian ransomware hackers. Now, this was announced by the Foreign Office yesterday, and it specifically names these individ- seven individuals and says that they are responsible for carrying out ransomware attacks against the UK and that they have have been involved in extorting million, tens of millions of pounds from British businesses. Just as a quick recap for the listeners, ransomware is a type of computer virus, essentially, where what happens is the people deploying it, so they'll pick a company, they'll target it, they'll get their malicious software into that company's IT networks, and it then scrambles all the files within that network. Uh, and it then flashes up a message saying, all your files have been encrypted. Send us very large sums of money in cryptocurrencies, and we promise, we faithfully promise that once you've sent us that money, we will unlock it. And we'll give you back access to your networks in return for this ransom payment. Now, that's... Got a, a, quite a strong Ukrainian dimension that I don't think is really appreciated much by the wider world, partly because on the technical side, ransomware is actually very useful as a military weapon of war because it is software that is designed to be silently infiltrated into a target's networks to, to disable them, or with some slight modifications, destroy them. And we've seen the Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian Cyber Defense Agency, the Triple cip the State Special Service for oh, Hang on. State, the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection of Ukraine—that's their cyber defense agency—has talked in the past quite a lot about Wiper ransomware. So instead of flashing up a ransom demand, it in fact just goes in there and, and is used to destroy networks. It deletes and scrambles everything, and there is no possibility of recovering it or paying a large sums of money to, to to plead with someone to bring back everything that's just been lost. But The other side of this one as well is that prior to the war there was an awful lot of cross-border stuff going on between Ukraine and Russia when it came to ransomware gangs. Now a lot of ransomware activity is concentrated in what you might describe as Russian-speaking nations. And it was known that there were, and indeed still are to this day, ransomware criminals operating from within Ukraine and from within Russia and were even members of the same gangs and were actually sort of working side-by-side, cheek-by-jowl on their uh, widespread extortion campaigns directed against the West, and what happened when war broke out was was extremely interesting, certainly to the cybersecurity industry, because in one in one high profile case, there was a gang called Conti who have, who have been involved in extorting hundreds of millions from Western businesses, and what, a Conti member from Ukraine, once the invasion, you know, once the Russian tanks had rolled across the border, uh, said, "Look, I'm not I'm not going to put up with this. This is this is an outrage. Even by my standards, this is an outrage." And he took all of the internal chats and communications from the gang and he dumped them all online. And he said to the wider cybersecurity world, look at this. This is exactly how Conti operates. Here's all the internal details you could possibly need to know to track it down, to neutralise them, to identify the operators and hopefully deploy some sort of sanctions against them. So bringing it back to the, um, you know, the UK sanctions that were, that were announced this week... What we're seeing here is more of, a, more of an attempt to clamp down on these ransomware criminals and to essentially to, to target them, to put them personally into the spotlight and say, we know who you are, we know what you're doing. And the ability to do that, and also I think the Foreign Office has suggested that these guys are taking their, their direction from the Russian intelligence agency, so they are in fact acting as a... well in, in my view, in my personal view, uh, that you could describe them as acting as, as a military unit or a paramilitary unit that is, that has its targets selected by the Russian state, by the Russian intelligence agencies themselves. So... Yeah, it's good to be, be able to sort of bring these these criminals into the limelight and say, no longer you're going to hide in the shadows, and no longer are you going to be able to sit there and say, no longer are you going to be able to sit there and and say, I am hiding behind my 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 anonymous internet username and my hard to trace cryptocurrencies. We know your name, we know your age, we've got your mugshots. You're going to be unable to continue operating in the way that you do, and then a very small way, this is actually denting, I suspect, the the Russian ability to keep carrying out these cyber attacks. Because ultimately, these people are not members of a formal Russian military unit, these ransomware hackers. They're not people who are within what you might call the protection of the Russian state. They are not completely insulated from the consequences of their actions in a legal way. And it may well be the case that some of them are now sitting there thinking, hells bells, I'm not as anonymous as I thought I was. I'm, I, you know, They know who I am. If I ever travel abroad outside of Russia again, I may find myself being arrested and extradited to to the UK or to the US and facing years or decades in prison as a result. And it's this ability that we have in the West to impose those financial sanctions, to freeze bank accounts, to get hold of overseas assets, to put out uh, you know, port alerts, arrest warrants in place. It's, it's that ability to put that chilling effect on these individuals, which has, a, and admittedly, it is a small effect. It is a small effect. It's not as not as immediate as as dropping a bomb or it's not as immediate as a police raid and rounding them all up in one fell swoop but there is evidence out there to suggest that over time the impact of these sanctions has slowly degraded these gangs ability to operate to recruit new members and to and to generally keep on posing the threat that they do to the west and also to ukraine and ultimately depriving the russians of their ready access to these types of online criminals slowing them down getting the if you can put it this way, the best online criminal minds to think, nah, we'll just quietly fade away, thanks very much. That, I think, is a win. That, in my view, is a good positive outcome. It's a small step. It's not a a killer blow, as it were, but it is, I think, a good positive development to see that that kind of action being taken by the West.
1: Thanks, Gaz. And in terms of a collective response from, from, from the West or the external supporters for Ukraine, um, all right, let's go back a step. Is it possible to have a kind of collective response in the similar way that we watch the the debate over conventional weapons? Or is the, the the realms of cyber and the depth you have to be to have the effect you've just described, you're really only talking five eyes and then you're probably only talking GCHQ, NSA, that kind of level. So is there is there an, is there similar collaboration or coordination, do you think, in this
2: side of the fight? I absolutely believe that there is. We traditionally, what happens when we when cyber sanctions are announced, is that the Five Eyes and usually the, the major EU countries and, and the bloc itself sort of get together behind the scenes ahead of time and say, right, we've identified these these particular ransomware criminals or gangs. We're going to put sanctions on them. Will you join us in doing that? And what we tend to see is that these, you know, all, all, all of these Western countries, the Five Eyes plus the EU, tend to act in lockstep on these sanctions. So we do tend to normally see that there is a, a, a sort of collective effort there to bring everyone together into the fold and say, right, we're going to go ahead and do this now. And we're going to all act together to make sure that there is certainly within, within the Western sphere influence, nowhere for these guys to sort of wriggle away and be able to get away from that. Um, so, yeah, I think we uh, I, I, I need to, to go and, and just check very carefully before I say something which may or may not be accurate. But I do believe that we we have seen coordinated action on this one from the US and from Brussels as well. So, yeah, actually, when it, when it comes to, to, to cyber sanctions and that type of, of cyber relevant activity, it is actually easier in many ways to take action than it is to discuss, for example, support in terms of heavy armour or jets for Ukraine.
1: Thanks, guys. And final question, if I may. Doing um, Telegraph's bit for public public service here. Anyone listening who is just you know, this is all a bit. This can be this can be very murky and very worrying. We talk about you know, phishing emails and all the rest of it and, it, and it's very easy to get lost in it and just sort of think, "Oh my God, there's nothing I can do." What what can we as individuals do? <laughs> he says having been hacked last year by the Russians, but anyway, what could what could what can we do as as individuals to better protect our or to best protect ourselves? There's just a couple of things we can do, sort of right now, or things to hold in mind. What would you what would you advise to protect ourselves from this kind of this kind of stuff?
2: happily it's it's all very very simple straightforward stuff that you can do to protect yourself number one have some, some kind of antivirus installed not only on your computer but on your mobile phones your tablets you know have some sort of built-in protection there that's scanning the files you're doing when you're receiving emails you're opening emails clicking on links anything like that stop and think you know has somebody sent you an attachment out of the blue why have they sent you an attachment out of the blue have they themselves been hacked are you being targeted even if it's a friendly name or somebody you know well, and they've suddenly sent you something that doesn't look quite right, just pause and think. If you can, pick up the phone, get an hold of them, and say hello. Did you did you send me a link to some random thing the other day? Ask those questions. Be, sus- I think, suspicious is too strong a way of putting it. Be be sceptical. What was it? Trust but verify, as Ronald Reagan put it.
1: Brilliant. Thank you guys. Much appreciated. Now I would like to welcome Dan. I linked an article that that you did with Colin Freeman, or well, f- for which Colin Freeman interviewed you on February the 2nd. I linked it in my on the in my Twitter post about this about this episode of Ukraine the Latest. And in that article you talked about how and why you set up the Trident Defence
3: Initiative
1: but before we get into that and your time in Ukraine can you just tell us a little bit about your your background your time in the British Army but welcome Dan.
3: Yeah brilliant thank you uh, Dominic and Gareth for having me on and arranging this it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah so uh, I initially joined the British Army in around 2012 the early part of 2012 um, and I went on to serve four years in the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment in the infantry but I specialised in languages so arabic and Pasht, and then uh, i served four years there and around 2015 uh, i began to work as a volunteer medic in uh, in various other places such as iraq syria myanmar and colombia also
1: brilliant so then why where how and when ukraine what why and where you how did you join the ukrainian military or what say can you bring us into into this bit of bit of geography and history please
3: that's correct. Yeah, in uh, in twenty nineteen, I moved out to Ukraine uh, and I joined the Ukrainian Marine Corps, specifically thirty sixth Brigade, where I served three years. Two of those years I was involved in what was known as the anti terrorist operations, uh, or the the joint services areas, and that was effectively the front line prior to february the 24th so that was the the separatist conflict and the the i, I believe you know openly confirmed by russia now uh their involvement in that conflict include, including the annexation of crimea
1: now i believe you settled in butcher a name that has terrible resonance with us today can you talk us through the first few months of of the war i believe you set up a makeshift hospital in your basement can you tell us about that and um and just, and what was happening, paint us a picture in those, those first few chaotic, well, the first few months.
3: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I actually returned to Ukraine from a small vacation in the UK as I was on vacation from the military at the time and I returned back to Ukraine on February the 23rd. I I have lived in Butcher for the last, uh, well, the the entire time that I've been in Ukraine, so coming up to four years now. And uh, obviously quite, yeah, as you said, an infamous place now due to the sort of crimes that were committed there and and the discoveries that were made after the the liberation. Yeah, uh, very, you know, sort of very traumatic time. We woke up very early in the morning, I think between 0,500, 0,600. Um, and uh, yeah, phone call from my girlfriend at the time, her father, saying, you know, I, I couldn't overhear the conversation, but you know, could uh, could tell there was something up. I uh, opened up Live UA map, and you know, I think one of the first videos I was greeted by was the the Russian tank crashing through the the Ukrainian block post on the Crimean bridge connecting uh, Crimea to mainland Ukraine. And then it really just started uh, the initial first two weeks that that almost blurred together. But uh, as the Russians, you know, gradually made their way closer to Bucha and ultimately captured it, I was unable to link up my my battalion themselves as they were in Mariupol at the time and were subsequently captured during the, the the capture of Mariupol as a whole. So I was uh, I was ordered to you know sort of survive, essentially. Um, Most of my background has been medical. So I'd established with what little medical equipment I had at my house at the time, hospital in my basement, sort of, you know, minor surgeries, trauma injuries, and even issuing out chronic medicine. And I was responsible for around Around three to four hundred people that decided to remain in butcher at the time. You know, there was a lot of confusion at the beginning. People weren't sure, you know, could you leave, you know, should you leave, etc. That sort of that fog of war that we uh, that we already know. Yeah, we 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 just sort of went through that that first two weeks. I think after the second or third day, we'd lost gas, power, Internet, everything. So there wasn't there wasn't really much to uh, much to go in the way of communications and everything. And the Russians actually captured Butcher as a whole uh, during the time there. We weren't really sure if we could, if we could even leave. The information coming from the Russians that men would not be able to leave on any green corridors. And then we we eventually found out that we could leave. And uh, I'd made my way in an evacuation corridor as a civilian because I, I was a non-combatant at the time, you know, working as a medic with my family. And we'd uh, transited through multiple Russian block posts. I'm a believer of the truth. And the the Russians I encountered them were the cream of the crop in regards to the Russian military. It was the the airborne airborne units and special forces units. And they'd stopped us at multiple block posts. They'd uh, searched our vehicles, you know, very minor questioning, didn't check documents. And I think that was my saving grace as I only had my British passport. And we eventually made it back to Kiev. After that, I, as you know, where I stand now, I'm currently in Kharkiv. Uh, I then went on to set up Trident Defence Initiative.
1: Yeah, I'd like to move on to that in just just one moment. But just before we, we do, can I just ask you, as you were leaving Butcher, we heard reports from elsewhere around the country that men of fighting age or military age males were being searched for tattoos to, to describe any kind of military affiliation. Did that happen to you? And secondly, you describe... Uh, dare I say it, a professional outfit that you came up against or came came through the Russian as you went through the Russian lines? Can you tell us from your with your military experience how did you know that they were that you, that you ha- you put them into that category straight away? I mean, how are they how are they carrying themselves? How are they carrying their weapons? What was the state of their kit? What were the signs that you, as a soldier, looked for to say actually this this bunch are like I say small p professional but first of all the tattoos
3: yeah so I think what the, the reports that were coming out about that I know a few individuals, uh, civilians that had made it out of Mariupol at that time and it seemed the, the majority of that those reports were coming from Mariupol and with its association to uh, Azov Battalion and other sort of infamous units you know in, in the western media and within Russia themselves. i seemed most of the checks for tattoos, uh, I, you know I wouldn't say all of them, I wasn't in every single city at the same time but the publicised checks for things like that were happening predominantly in mariupol we didn't experience anything like that in the kiev area specifically bucha pm moving on to obviously the 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 russians that that we encountered as we as we left bucha you as you know as a a military man yourself you you're very pressed if you're going to see you know convoys of tanks lined up on the road with with the the development of drones and and more uh, advanced aviation normally things are hidden and it's it's very densely forested around kiev so there wasn't there wasn't a huge sign of Russians, there was a huge sign of their presence. Tank tracks on the ground, the streets were littered with uh, civilian vehicles that had been shot up, some still with uh, with bodies inside of them, unfortunately. And But there wasn't a huge presence of the Russians that you'd expect us. As we transited through the first block post, we came round a corner and we'd seen around 150 metres down the road, Russian BMP, a bunch of troops sat on top of it, and a, a small sort of block post set up. So we, we stopped about 100 metres back and I assume the commander sort of waved us forward. They didn't stop us at this one, they they pushed us straight through. But as we went down, obviously going very, very slowly past them, I looked looked out to the window to the right and there was a young Russian soldier, very, very young, almost, you know, looking 15, 16, not, not saying that he was, but he looked like that. He was in the, in the little block post and we sort of locked eyes for a second. And he looked almost as confused as I was as, as why he was there or what he was doing. Um, and these guys were were equipped in you know the newest freshest kit you know the 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 ribbons and everything and, and the ratnik system that the the Russians upgraded to and they they were they were you know they had the signs of professional soldiers they were you know, they were clean they had you know what we'd maybe what we'd consider as as former British soldiers not the newest kit but definitely. Uh, Definitely very professional care. It wasn't until the second block post, uh, it was very apparent they were some sort of Russian special forces. And their demeanor was alert, but casual and, and relaxed and professional. They didn't raise their weapons. We had our hands raised at the time. And they uh, they carried themselves very well. They they had um, a mixture of kit, but it was it was professional kit. Uh, They actually the commander, I believe the one that we initially spoke to actually opened the door to my vehicle. And I'm a a bit of an animal rescuer. So I had about seven cats, two dogs in the car at the time. And I speak fluent Russian. And I said to him, you know, I've I've got cats, I've got dogs. They're going to get out. Can you close the door? And he said, yeah, no problem. You can put your hands down. They then went, uh, went on to check the trunks of our vehicles. Uh, most of it was, you know, just, well, all of it was people's belongings or animal food, things like this. And I believe they were, you know, just very vaguely checking for weapons. Obviously, you had the, the territorial defense forces of the Ukrainian side were, some of them were fighting in civilian clothes. So they were probably looking for any signs of that. We'd marked the vehicles with white tape. Us, ourselves, were wearing white tape. Uh, and it seemed they were very aware that civilians would be transiting through there and and making their way back on an assigned green corridor. So they they were definitely more focused on the military picture, and not the you know the the civilian picture. And I, I think that that shows in most of the crimes were committed after uh, the Russians had sort of taken those areas.
1: Yeah, and I apologise, Dan. I said I'd I'd move straight on to TDI, but I I just wanted to finish off here. So you, you, the the Russians you're describing in Butcher you said they're professional so they're carrying themselves well they are interacting appropriately by the sound of it with the civilians as far as you can see so what happened because we we know what what then subsequently happened in Butcher and the terrible crimes that were committed so did did these units roll out were they were they were they replaced in in um, in bucha by others or what or did, i mean do you know what what happened in terms
3: of the units i think it's an interesting point because especially when when i quote you know what happened to me, and I try and tell the the truth and, and what I saw and what I personally experienced. People say to me, "Oh, the the Russians don't have many professional soldiers," you know, the 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 orc quote, and and that they've committed crimes, and we, we saw evidence of those crimes. Those crimes were committed in Butcher, and I was uh, I was involved in the liberation uh, of the Sumi region at the, when, when the Russians left, and I'd also went back to Butcher a few days after the Russians had pulled back, and I spoke to people down there, and I think what what tends to happen is. Uh, obviously, that situation's changed now. We're a year into the war. But at the beginning, uh, these uh, Vidova, uh divisions, these airborne divisions, Marines, and other professional Russian troops were spearheading these offensives. They were. They were leading, you know, leading the attacks onto, onto critical places and, and they were the more professional of the Russian army. What would happen is those units would move forward uh, and continue to, to focus on military objectives. And what you would have is the, the second and, and the third, fourth line of Russian troops, which is normally comprised of conscripts, uh, people from, you know, uh, ethnic minority regions of, uh, of Russia as a, you know, as a widely expansive country um, and these people would be more, uh, I would say, uh, inclined or less disciplined, less controlled and commit these crimes.
1: Yes, thank you for that. So, so you managed to get out. So, so why did you come back and what, what made you set up the Trident Defence Initiative? What, what is, it? is it? Who is it for? Why is it needed? What are you doing?
3: Well, it's key to say I've i personally myself haven't left the territory of Ukraine since February the 24th. Um, been active in in assisting the military since the since the beginning of the war. Um, but there was a I I'd experienced it in my my three years of service with the Ukrainian military. Uh, I'd attended, uh, Seabreeze three times, which was a a joint Ukrainian NATO exercise down in the south of Ukraine. And how I, I had seen the the sort of, uh, including Operation Orbital as well, the the British mission to Ukraine. I had seen how these missions were massively underused, and uh, I would go as far to say, attending it, you know, three times myself, that especially Seabreeze was more of a PR stunt and a show of force, and it didn't really have the value to the Ukrainians that it could have had. The Ukrainian military has, has suffered with uh, lots of things. The the holdover from the fall of the Soviet Union, lots of Soviet practices still remain. And also, uh, you know, massive rapid expansions in, in 2014. Prior to 2014, the Ukrainians really didn't have a military. They did, in a lot of ways, lean on Russia for their defense uh, and also lean to the West in a lot of ways. So they had to make a massive mobilization and expansion uh, in 2014 that continued through multiple mobilizations. And then we saw prior to February the twenty fourth the creation of the territorial defense forces, which uh, I believe the initial expansion was one hundred and twenty thousand, and it's gone up to over two hundred and fifty thousand now, including just uh, general mobilizations that the Ukrainians have conducted, uh, and the the huge amount of volunteers that join the Ukrainian military. Ukraine, as a, as a as a military, uh, has definitely improved over the years, but it massively lacks standardization. It, it tends to try and lean towards more of a uh nato uh nato standard uh, but it lacks that that ability and that cultural change uh, a clean nato standard doesn't really work for the ukrainians so i had said this for many years and i took it upon myself to to create this organization which uh, as it stands now is is the largest within ukraine um to uh, to really influence that standard use my experience as a british soldier uh, my my knowledge of NATO military uh, practices and also my knowledge of the Ukrainian military and what works for them. Um, we're seeing uh, it, uh, we're coming up to obviously very close to a year of war now. Uh, and Trident has, uh, up to this point, trained uh, just over 6,000 troops with currently around 170 to 200 troops currently on active courses.
1: Brilliant. Thank you. I need to take
2: a break. Everyone's bored of hearing from me. Gaz, have you got any questions for Dan? I certainly do. Thanks, Dom. So, so Dan, you've trained 6,000 members of the Ukrainian armed forces so far. How, I mean, in, in kind of broad brush terms, without giving away too much, how have you seen their training needs change over time? Is there anything that that gets more or less emphasis nowadays than it did when you first began?
3: Yeah, it's a brilliant question. I I believe that, uh, well, one of the missions when I first set this up was training equipment. That was sort of our mission, uh, which to, you know, provide the units we were training equipment. That mission became sort of, uh, impossible to do as our numbers got bigger and bigger. Um, you know, to, we, we run two, two week infantry courses and, and three week, uh, team medic courses. And when you're processing, you know, hundreds a month, it's really impossible to keep equipping them. We are a volunteer organization for the most part. um, and most of their needs came logistically at the beginning, you know, lack of uniforms, lack of body armor, lack of medical kits, uh, you know, even lack of boots, um, which which you're, you know, we saw from the Russian side as well, which you'll see from almost any military in, in a rapid expansion in wartime. So the, the needs of training have definitely changed. Uh, the the need for uh, assault training and, and taking territory uh, has definitely changed as the, the wars stabilize a lot more in the east. Uh, we're seeing definitely still a massive emphasis on tactical medicine training and trying to reduce the casualties that the Ukrainians sustain. And we're, we're looking at really uh, a, a very uncertain time where we can't really specify our training as we're we're seeing the beginnings, maybe the probings of, of a large offensive. Um, we don't know where it's going to come specifically. Uh, we don't know how it's going to come. So very hard to tailor that training. A lot of it is defensive as well at the moment. The Ukrainians are pretty happy with... The, the areas they managed to liberate uh, prior to winter, and holding those areas I think is very key for Ukraine to to retrain on this uh, this new Western equipment, but also to to retrain on the captured Russian equipment that they managed to gain uh, during the, the counter-offensives.
2: And that's a, that's an interesting point you raised there, Dan, about the, the, the new Western equipment that's coming on stream. Do you, how much of a difference do you see that making? Because we, we have a lot of... A lot of chatter and speculation over here, and certainly the non-specialist side of things about what difference it could make and how many and what what effect it will have. But from your perspective, as somebody on the inside of the of the training and delivery pipeline, there, what what sort of a difference is it going to make? Do you think?
3: I think we we have those uh, those sort of crown jewel weapons that you know fill the the internet space, the meme space. Uh, you know your your javelins. High Mars things like that, um, but really the, the the weapons that make a difference, I think, are you know the the amassing amounts of uh, armoured fighting vehicles. We've recently seen the Bradleys and the Strikers being offered to Ukraine. Uh, the tanks, I think, will make a great difference in regards to you know spearheading offensives to take back Ukrainian territory. So I think that a lot of the Uh, A lot of the equipment that is overshadowed that doesn't get uh, spoken about makes uh, definitely more of an impact. Uh, Things like high Mars make specific area impacts. But those those uh, those mass mass givens of equipment do make a big difference. I think uh, I think Dom spoke about it at the beginning with the uh, the missile strikes that happened early this morning into the morning. Um, I personally experienced them. It woke me up uh, four in the morning to to a large number of missiles hitting Kharkiv very close to us. Uh, But we see a massive difference with the air defence. I think 61 out of 71 missiles were shot down today. And that is a massive, massive difference from where we were in the first even the first six months of the war, when I think the Ukrainians' success rate in shooting down missiles was 20%, and then very suddenly uh, it jumped up massively, which was a a clear sign that those Western air defence systems were now operating in Ukraine. Uh, Unfortunately for myself and and people in areas like Zaporizhia, um, we are predominantly targeted by S-300 missiles, which as of now, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, are impossible to shoot down
2: with air defence. Cool. Thank you very much for that for that valuable inside perspective there, Dan. And I will now hand back to Dom for the uh, for the final final segment. Thanks, thanks, guys.
1: Dan, so you're in you're in Kharkiv right now, and you had strikes last night, as you've just described, strikes that hit across the whole country. Can you just paint us a picture of what the mood is like, Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city? I mean, what is day-to-day life like there? How are people responding to the to the air raid alarms? Is there any any sense of thinking about after or later are people making plans for the future what what is what's day-to-day life like in Kharkiv uh
3: well I give especially for the viewers not many people have heard of the city of Kharkiv as opposed to Kiev Lviv and the other famous cities Kharkiv sits very very close to the Russian border on on the north side of the the city of Kharkiv you're you're looking at 20 kilometers and even less uh, to the Russian border uh, specifically the Belagrod region Uh, I first came to Kharkiv around six, seven months ago. It's been our our main training location uh, since then. And I've seen a massive change in the city. When I first came here, the Russians were still surrounding the city. They were uh, five, six kilometers from our positions at the time. And they were using conventional uh, artillery means to shell the city, even the center. Excuse me. Uh, so they, they were hitting it with, you know, MLRS, artillery. Uh, and as the counteroffensive offensive happened, uh, the frequency of, of those strikes, uh, you know, dropped massively. Um, but the Russians kept up those bombardments of S-300s. Uh, believe I, I think you you mentioned it before, but uh, around October time, our base was actually struck while we were there by by five S three hundreds. And in in the recent weeks, around two weeks ago, one of our accommodations was hit, and you know, thankfully, nobody was injured from our our side, but. You're, you're seeing a massive difference to the other cities. Uh, Kharkiv went through a very similar experience to Kiev and Cherniev. It was uh, almost surrounded, um, and the Ukrainians managed to to hold the Russians back and push them out of conventional artillery range. And now the city has, has seen a, an almost return to life. Um, you know, the people are, are coming back uh, through necessity more than anything. Uh, they, they need to continue to work. Uh, they need to continue to, to fuel the economy and obviously a, a need to, to to be home, to be closer to their loved ones. But the city is is under constant bombardment uh, far more than the, the more Western cities, uh, which creates a, a precarious situation for us. But as, as military instructors, it sort of pays dividends to be closer to so the troops that are on the front line that need it.
1: Thanks, And just final final question, if I may. Any old muckers from the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment got in touch with you. What are they? What are they saying to you? Do they, do they always think that you'd end up doing something like this, or uh, uh, what? What are they suggesting to you? Uh,
3: well, I've I've been in this this realm of work and, and in conflict zones for you know, over ten years now. So it's, it's definitely not my first hurrah, uh, and I'd, I'd say it's arguably my definitely not my last hurrah um so yeah i think they're 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 interested they're keen um and it goes to show you know i wasn't i wasn't myself you know i, I believe you were um you know a, 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 an officer and stuff I, I wasn't that and i i didn't have those uh those positions of command and things but what i do have is a, is a history in ukraine a grasp of the language uh, and a, a clear-cut view of what the ukrainians need how they need it Um, and how to best deliver it to them. And and that's what we've been trying to do for the last, well, so it's very difficult to say, but the last year. uh, It doesn't feel like a year, but uh, yeah, it's almost a year now.
1: Well, Dan, thanks so much indeed for coming on today to explain that. Um, Absolutely fascinating stuff. We wish you well and we will stay in touch and no doubt speak again. But thank you. Thank you so much for your time.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
1: I just want to finish off today's pod by just talking about the last couple of days and and where I was. So I was due. So we when did we last week? Tuesday, I think. And I said, uh, not going to be here for the next couple of days. Blah, blah, blah. Can't, can't say where and all that kind of jazz. So I was heading to Rome with the defence secretary and the foreign secretary uh, was out was out there um, to the Pontignano conference, which is an annual thing. Uh, it's a big bilateral UK, UK, um, Italy. It's a defence and security culture business big old melange of, um, of worthies for a couple of days. And it works really well, apparently. You get all the right people in the right rooms for a short space of time, have a load of pasta, and, and everything, everything's uh, dandy. So so that was what we were heading out for. And then as I was heading out to RAF Northolt, which is just on the western side of, of London, the, an RAF base here, to fly out, the, the news broke that President Zelensky was, was was coming to town. So I thought, right, well, that's, that's our trip. You know, cancelled. There's no way Ben Wallace is not going to uh, is not going to want to be in London if President Zelensky is here. Um, so I was fully expecting it to to be cancelled. There was also a very thick fog around West London um, on Wednesday morning. So I'm I'm at Northolt. I'm just sort of kicking my heels, looking at the uh, looking at the RF uniforms and all the all the beards everyone's wearing these days, and um, thinking it's all it's all going to be off. And turns out no no it's it it's still on. President Zelensky flew to Stansted now. It turns out that he was due the, C- the RAF C seventeen aircraft that 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 brought him into the country was supposed to land at Northolt, and, and then he was going to do a a brush pass, quick hello with uh, with with me and Ben Wallace, probably more interested in one than the other, uh, and then he was uh, then going to head off. But the fog, he he flew to Stansted, so we so we headed out and um, and we saw all the as the day wore on, all these um, messages about. Um, uh, the, the speech and the, the talking about fighter jets and so on and so forth. We were getting we were getting these this bits of news in real time as same as everyone else everyone else in the world. And so it was very interesting for me, as a you know one step to the right hand side of history kind of bloke as a journalist, to watch what happens then when then when the snow dome has been shaken and boy was it shaken. So I think President Zelensky played an absolute blinder. Okay, he came to you to UK. Uh, and framed the narrative as if the whole thing about donation of fighter jets was a done deal. I mean, his final words, uh, as he left uh, left you, the British Parliament, having having addressed uh, Parliament, was "Thank you in advance for your powerful English planes." I mean, you know, not English, the, the British, German, uh, German, Italian, and, and Spanish. So, hey, never mind that bit. But thank you in advance for your for your planes. I mean certainly presumptuous and a little bit cheeky, I have to say. I mean, you're coming here and saying thanks for your planes before you've even got them. But he framed the whole narrative as, look, let's not get down and dirty in the details of, you know, who's going to donate what, where. Look, this is clearly going to happen. Now let's just talk about what it means and where we go from here and, and all the rest of it. And he framed the debate that way. And then it's very, very difficult, well, as we saw, I think, impossible for the British, the prime minister, to say... Hang on a minute, mate! You know, no, no, no. We're not giving you any plays. What are you talking about? You know, he couldn't do it. So obviously, Rishi Sunak, as the as the genial host, has to sort of make make comments like, "Well, yeah, we'll we'll look at that. We'll see what we can do. Every assistant, all this kind of stuff, which is lapped up and amplified, of course. Why wouldn't you? By by President Zelensky and, the, and Ukrainian authorities. And we're in Rome listening to all this. And yeah, I'm not going to tell tales out of school about the, some of the private conversations I had with with Ben Wallace. But you know, he was he was saying, well, we're having these conversations. we've always said nothing is off the table. nothing is on the table. No decisions have been met. We're constantly looking at what we can offer what the demand signal is from Ukraine. what is the art of the possible with our allies so So there were somewhat sort of if not mixed messages then understandably understandably slightly confused messages because london was getting all was getting all excited and um you know, Rishi, Rishi Sunak was was having his moment in the sun, and, and fair play to him. And President Zelensky is pushing it for all it's worth. So, so we were getting these messages come through to to Rome about um, this uh, this idea that that Britain would then look to see what it can supply, specifically within the context of fighter jets. So this then turns into the MOD will will investigate what it can what it can send, which then about an hour later turned into. Number 10 has ordered the MOD to investigate what jets jet it So the whole narrative was utterly skewed, was being driven. Well, I mean, Zelensky was well ahead of it, and then everyone else was playing catch-up on this on this narrative. And I was with Ben Wallace saying, but hang on, nothing's changed. We are constantly doing this. We're always evaluating what we can offer, when, what kind of capacity, what's the down downstream effect, what impact does it have on our allies, what's the politics? And it was absolutely fascinating to see this um this narrative unfolding in in real time i was trying to re- report the facts as I, as i see them and and give my my view of them to uh, to the paper back here we were getting stuff up online and i was just trying to um if not hang on to the tail of the tiger but but Certainly, stroke the tiger's ears and say, "Hang on, let's slow down a sec. We're not, we're not giving any jets. That's simply not going to happen for for fear that we, the Telegraph, would look a bit daft if the, if there wasn't an announcement in the next the next press conference about delivering jets." But there was such a fervour here in London by that stage that it was it was really quite um, it was quite a fraught atmosphere on the on the on the where are we now the, uh, Wednesday Wednesday afternoon. So it was fascinating to see global politics play out to see. Um, departmental politics play out over over well in live in real time over the uh, over social media and as breaking news sort of hit our hit our uh, smartphones and what have you um but it was all as i say i think it all driven i think by president Zelensky just framing the debate as in We did. We had this over tanks. We had this over high Mars. We had this over air defense. You know, the no, 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 no. Oh, go on then. And he was just saying, look, it's going to happen. We're going to get to the oh, go on then bit with fighters. So let's just move on from there. And it was fascinating to see. I've rambled on enough. We've been going on for uh, for for long enough. I can see I can see uh, David and Francis still lurking. So I'm going to get told off for going over time. So we will draw it to a halt there. But these these little these little snippets, I will I will tell you what I can when I can. But I like I say I won't tell tales out of out of school, um, because then I won't be invited back later. But it's just fascinating to see um, see global politics playing out in real time and being a, like I say a, a um, if not a bystander but certainly just just to the right hand side of history over there at the back, holding a little glass of something nice. Ukraine, the latest, is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to the podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells, Neve Robinson and Giles Gear.